Well, just over a week ago, about two Fridays ago, January 8th, was the 65th anniversary of the death of five missionaries in Ecuador. I'm sure many of you probably know their story. Maybe you've seen the movie End of the Spear. Maybe you'd recognize the name Jim Elliott. He's probably the most famous of these missionaries. But he died along with Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian 65 years ago. As they were attempting to share the gospel, really to contact and reach the Aka Indians to share the gospel for the first time in their history. And when they died in 1956, the news of their tragic death spread throughout the world. It's become one of the most defining moments in modern missions. Hundreds of young people were encouraged and inspired to go to the mission field. Millions of dollars have been raised because of their sacrifice. And their story has impacted countless Christians of these 65 years. I'm sure many of you have been impacted. I have been incredibly impacted by them. That's why I have a son named Elliot. As inspirational as their story has been for many believers, one thing that most believers don't know is that when they died, many people believe that their deaths was a tragic nightmare, even in the church. That there were many people that were saying that their deaths were a waste. They were a mistake. They were a failure of the church and a failure in missions. I mean, these men were so young. They're in their early 20s. They had young wives and young kids. And their, their lives were cut short in their prime. And Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of of Jim Elliott, actually spent a lot of time speaking out against this public outrage when her husband died. She actually appeared on talk shows and she she spoke at churches for years. She even said that one of the reasons she decided to write a book about it was to set the record straight. She actually wrote the book Shadow Shadow of the Almighty to set the record straight. She took that title right out of Psalm 91. Because she said that she, she wanted to teach the world that her husband and his friends died within or below the shadow of the Almighty. That their deaths were not an accident. They were not a mistake. They, they weren't a hiccup in God's plan. It wasn't a failure of faith. It was part of God's sovereign and perfect plan. She said she wanted the world to know that the refuge of God's people is not a refuge free of suffering and death, but a refuge from final judgment found only in Christ. I'm sure when many of us hear that, we, we would agree with that. We might even want to say, Amen. Preach it. But when suffering and tribulation comes knocking on our door, how do we respond? Do we still believe that suffering is, is part of God's sovereign and perfect plan? Or do we slip into diagnostic mode? How do I fix this? What did I do wrong? I thought that God loved me. I thought that God was for me. This is not what I signed up for. Oh, if maybe I had more faith, prayed more, fought more, maybe if I was like Abraham then I wouldn't struggle as much. 
Then I wouldn't struggle with this sin. I would have victory like they did. You know, many of us mock the people in the word faith movement for preaching your best life now. But in many ways, when we suffer, we can become just like them, can't we? We can begin to wonder, what do I have to do to make my life better right now? How do I get past this suffering? You see, the Bible teaches us that God is not just at work when things are going well. When faith is strong and blessings are plentiful, plentiful. God is at work actually when His people suffer. When His people are in tribulation and even when His people die in faith. And that's what Hebrews 11, the end of Hebrews 11, will really show us clearly today. In fact, this whole chapter, and really especially these last verses, is summed up in a great quote from John Chrysostom. He's one of the early church fathers, I believe, at the end of the 2nd or 3rd century there. And he's, he said this about this passage. Faith accomplishes great things and suffers great things. Faith both accomplishes great things and suffers great things. And I would add, even in us. That's what this passage is about this morning. The accomplishments of faith and the suffering of faith. And Now, I don't want you to divorce this though from the rest of the chapter. Because when we hear faith accomplishes great things, we might be tempted that faith is all that matters. But we have to remember that what we've learned this whole time is that faith is nothing, nothing without its object. Right? It's nothing without the object of faith. Faith in and of itself didn't part the Red Sea. It didn't save the people from, from Pharaoh. It didn't bring down the walls of Jericho in and of itself. No, God worked through faith. Faith is just the means. right? It's the instrument that God uses to accomplish these great things. And so when I say that faith accomplishes great things, then faith suffers great things. What we mean and what we've meant this whole chapter is that God works through faith to accomplish great things. God works through faith to enable His people to suffer great things. And that's what this whole chapter has been about. But it's amazing how easily we can forget that, isn't it? How easily we miss that, even in the middle of Hebrews 11, with all these great examples of faith. Sometimes we read this and we just, we just have this guilt trip. Oh, if I could be more like Abraham, Moses, if I could have that faith, everything would just go so much better. That's not the point of this chapter at all. This chapter is here to show us, that look at what all that God can do through faith. Look at what God did through Abraham. Look at what God did through Moses and Isaac and these, these great heroes of the faith. Look what God did as His people trusted in His promises leaned on His Word and fixed their eyes on Jesus. You see, the encouragement for us is the same encouragement as it was for these early Hebrews who were struggling, isn't it? That we have the same God. The same Savior. We have the same promises. And if we trust in Him by faith, we will be sustained by faith. We don't have to give up. We don't have to throw in the towel. We don't have to run to, to these outmoded ways of worship like the Hebrews were tempted to do. The sacrifices and the temple. We have Christ. Fix our eyes on Him. And God will use our faith to accomplish great things and to suffer great things. And So as we go through this passage, that's what I want to talk about. The accomplishments of faith. That will be in the first four verses. The sufferings of faith. 
in the next four, and then the last two verses will be the call to faith. So let's start with the accomplishments of faith in verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me. Let's stop there for a second, because this is an interruption in this chapter, isn't it? It's, this rhetorical question comes up because the writer's telling us, look, I'm switching gears here. I'm going to speed this up because you know what? I think I've made my point pretty clear. Faith endures, right? The people of God endure by faith. And if I keep going this way for the rest of the chapter, then this chapter will be longer than the rest of the book of Hebrews. And so he's giving us a signal that, look, I'm going to start listing I'm going to list people and I'm going to list their accomplishments. And I'm going to just go rapid fire through this so that I can get to my point, which is the ultimate example and substitute for faith, Christ. He wants to rush to that more importantly than anything else. And so he does. Look at what it does in verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of who? Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And so what the writer essentially does here with these six men is he's summarizing the rest of the Old Testament. Remember, he's gone all the way up to the time of Joshua. And now what does he start with? Judges. right? He lists four judges. He lists a king, David, and then a prophet. And then he just lumps everybody else into the the category of prophet. So he's summarizing saying, the rest of the Old Testament here is what I'm talking about. All these men of faith. And it's so interesting to me who he calls out in this list. There are so many names that I thought would have made that list that wouldn't just been thrown into the category of prophets. Deborah, Isaiah, Daniel, Elijah, Ruth. Tremendous examples of faith, right? And there are a few people in that list that I scratch my head and think, really? Samson? That's, that's the one you're going to call out? I'm not so sure that he belongs in the Bible sometimes when I read his stories. So why, why these six men? Well, because God accomplished tremendous things through each of these men. And in their time, in their day, these men were underdogs for various reasons, whether by fear or by age or by weakness or so many things. But God used them and their conditions and their faith, as weak as it might be, to accomplish miraculous things. To win incredible battles over the Philistines and the Midianites and the Amorites. And all the ites, right, as my kids say. God worked powerfully through these six men to defend and protect God's people, to establish justice and to preach righteousness, to turn the hearts of God's people back to God. And just like all the other people in chapter 11, they all did it by faith. But if you know anything about these men, and I hope you do read their stories this week, you'll know that these men are not shining examples of faith, are they? In fact, these are not the guys that we would name our kids after. Don't you see too many Samsons running around? Right? Not the kind of guys we would say, you know what? Be like Gideon. Be like Jephthah. We might name our kid David and say be like David, but not just like David. Right? <laughs> Skip that Bathsheba part. That's, that's out of bounds. Right? Don't do that. Each of these men have flawed faith. Weak faith. Imperfect faith. I mean, Gideon. Gideon was fearful and weak. Hiding from the Midianites when God calls him and says, Hail Gideon, mighty son of valor. Mighty man of valor. I'm sure that had to be tongue-in-cheek. 
says, look, you're going to be my instrument to defeat the Midianites. And Gideon essentially says, if you remember, are you sure? I come from the smallest family in the smallest tribe. I'm sure there are better people for this job. Here, I have this fleece. Let's go figure something out. Right? Gideon was fearful. He was weak. Barak was hesitant. He was a powerful general. He had a huge army. But when the call to go to war came, he hesitated. He wouldn't leave unless Deborah the prophetess went with him. So his faith needed some serious prodding, some serious encouragement to be faithful. Samson, I mean, gosh, what could you say about Samson? Minimally, he's, he's unwise, sensuous. His testosterone levels are just way too high. <laughs> he's got anger issues. I mean, he sees the, the pretty Philistine girl and says, Dad, get her for me. And the Dad's like, ah, oh, son, that's a bad idea. That wouldn't honor the Lord. And he goes, ah, oh, Dad, get her for me now. That's what he says. I mean, Samson, his life is a mess in so many ways. What about Jephthah? Jephthah was strong in his faith. He wanted to honor the Lord, but he was foolishly rash. In Judges 11, he made a very foolish vow. He, he actually calls on the Lord and says, look, if you give me the victory over the Ammonites, then the first thing that comes out of my house, I will sacrifice to you as a burnt offering. And tragically, when he gets home, his daughter runs out to greet him to celebrate his victory. And he sacrifices her up to the Lord. This terribly tragic moment that was actually commemorated in Israel for years. And David, the man after God's own heart, he too was wicked, wasn't he? And selfish. Not just with the sin of Bathsheba, but at that time, he should have been out with his armies at war. He should have been out leading his people at war, but he stayed home to gawk at Bathsheba. And then after committing adultery, he goes and murders Uriah to cover it up. Even the man after God's own heart was wickedly sinful and selfish. Now Samuel is probably the most godly man on this list, but even Samuel was careless at times. I mean, even when it came to the day to pick new judges, do you remember what the people said about Samuel? We don't want Samuel's sons. They're wicked. So each of these men were weak, sinful, selfish. They struggled in faith, but amazingly, God used their faith. Their weak faith to accomplish great things. Well, like what? Look at verse 33. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice. Well, we've seen that already with these six men, right? Conquering kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. Well, what's that? Well, we'll see at the end of the chapter that this is not the ultimate promise. The, the promise of promises that Christ would come. But these are the little promises along the way. Often typological promises to point to that bigger promise. Like being delivered from Egypt. Going into the promised land and being victorious over the nations. God fulfilled every single one. So much so that Joshua in Joshua 21.45 can look out on the promised land and look out on all that God's done and say this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel has failed. All, all came to pass. Verse 33 continues, Stop the mouths of lions. Of course, this could be Samson, David, Stopping the mouths of lions by killing them? But it's probably referring to who? Daniel. Yeah. Daniel in Daniel 3, right? Excuse me, Daniel 6. 
where Daniel gets in trouble because by faith he continues to pray to his God even after the king made it illegal. And by faith he trusted the Lord even when he was thrown into the lion's den. And by faith, God used his faith to shut the mouths of the lions. So much so that when he was rescued from the lion's den, even the king praised God because of Daniel's faith. 34 says, they quenched the power of fire. We know that's talking about, right? Fiery furnace. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Daniel 3. Probably recognize them from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their pagan names, right? By faith, these men refused to bow to the king, to worship false idols. They, were, they decided to worship God. They were determined to worship God no matter the cost. No matter if God saved them or not. And by faith, God saved them from the fire. Some, the verse 34, escaped the edge of the sword. This could refer to so many. I mean, David delivered from Saul. Elijah from Jezebel. Elisha from Jehoram. Jeremiah from Jehoiakim. And so many more escaped death by faith. Let me get this kind of trinity of faith here. Where they were made strong out of weakness. Became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Of course, we see this with David and Goliath. We see this eventually with Gideon, don't we? Putting foreign armies to flight as he defeats the Midianites and even, even sinful Samson. At the end of his life, when he's stripped of his strength, dignity, he's mocked, his eyes are gouged out. By faith, his last act is to push those pillars over and crush the enemies of God. Judges even says that in the enemies of God killed in his death, were more than the enemies of God killed in his life. Then the ultimate accomplishment of faith, verse 35, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Right? Remember, Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises the son of the widow of Zarephath. 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises the son of the Shunammite woman. By faith, God conquered one of our greatest enemies, death. Raising these men from the dead. And when you look at this list, it's just staggering. It's amazing to see that all that God did through faith. And what's even more amazing is that God did this through weak faith. Sinful people. Broken people just like us. I love how real and relatable these men are. I'm so thankful that the Bible doesn't turn these stories into this kind of hagiography blowing these heroes to be up to be perfect and, and distant from us and totally unrelatable, totally unlike us. No, these men were failures. Failures in many ways. Even the best ones. But God used them and even their failures to accomplish great things. I think there's another lesson in the, the diversity of this list. We have to fight. We have to resolve as brothers and sisters in Christ, to kill comparison. As we can see, there's no Christian mold, is there? When we're saved by Christ, He doesn't turn us into clones. Every single life of faith is different. There's no two lives, two experiences are the same. So we have to fight the temptation to compare. To say, look, if I only had a life like that, if only I had a spouse like that, or, or kids like that, or a job like that. Or to even go the other way, well, at least I don't have kids like that. 
At least I don't have that boss or that wife or that husband. We so easily slip into this comparison game. And look, God gives us these examples for encouragement, for emulation. But we have to kill comparison because all it does is fuel our pride, not our faith. I love what Calvin says about this passage. He says, In every saint there is always to be found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved and used by God. We've seen these incredible accomplishments of faith. Let's look at verse 35, the sufferings of faith. Verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Sadly, this kind of suffering is so common in God's people, it's hard to even identify who this is about, isn't it? So many of the Old Testament saints suffered like this, even during the intertestamental period with the Maccabees. They were tortured in prison just like this. And it says they were stoned. The the cursed death of blasphemers and idolaters and false prophets, the biggest disgrace there is, was given to God's people. Jesus even says in His ministry that Israel has become notorious for stoning the prophets, stoning the people, bringing them the Word of God. We know Zechariah was stoned for faithfully preaching that God would judge Israel. Even Jeremiah was taken down to Egypt and stoned by his fellow Jews, wasn't he? They were sawn in two. A tradition says this is the fate of Isaiah. Sawn in two by a wooden sword as evil King Manasseh looked on joyfully. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Oh, this list is so... Staggering. I hope, I hope you noticed the massive change of tone in verse 35. Did you catch that? All these accomplishments of faith, all these victories of faith, and then all of a sudden, it just gets ugly. Imprisonment and torture and death. What, what, what happened there? Why did he shift gears so suddenly? Well, the writer's giving us a reality check. He's teaching us some very important truths about suffering and faith. And I'm so thankful, so thankful that these verses are here. That these four verses about the struggles and the suffering of faith are here along with the accomplishments of faith. Because if they weren't here, we would be tempted to believe that faith and suffering never go together. That that would be like an oxymoron to put faith and suffering in the same sentence. And if we believe that, then we'd have to assume that, you know what, suffering is just a failure of faith. It's the result of unbelief. It's the result of weak faith. And all we have to do is get better faith, stronger faith, then we can do what Abraham did. And Moses did. This is where the word faith movement goes, right? Oh, if I had more faith, I wouldn't struggle. 
I wouldn't be haunted by this sin. I would actually have the kind of accomplishments in the first few verses. Or we might go another way. Since faith and suffering can't go together, we might say, well, suffering is just an interruption to faith. You know, based on the first four verses, it seems that God will just bail us all out eventually. Just be patient, have faith. Eventually, God will turn the second four verses into the first four verses. And if we buy into this lie, we start slipping into the mindset that suffering, suffering is something that we have to fix rather than something that we're being called to endure by faith. We start saying things like, you know, once my health is restored, then I'll serve the Lord. Once we vote the right candidate into office, then the church will grow. Then the church won't be marginalized and persecuted like it is right now. Oh, once I fix this sin habit, or this this marital struggle, or this parenting difficulty, then, then, I can honor the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the reality is that suffering and faith often do go, go together in this fallen world, right? Faithful men get stoned to death. Sawn in two. Tortured and imprisoned for their faith, even today. Some of God's children are escaped from the edge of the sword, verse 34, and some, verse 37, die by the edge of the sword. Can't get more contrasting than that. Some people, some of God's children by faith, will shut the mouths of lions. Other people will get chewed on by the world like a doggy toy for the rest of their life. Destitute, afflicted, rejected, mistreated. Well, where's the hope in that? What if I'm the one in the second four verses? What if I I never see the accomplishments of faith in my lifetime? What if it's just all suffering? How do I find hope in that? Well, it actually comes in the middle of these verses. It's subtle, but it's there. First is that God gives faith to endure suffering. Look all the way up to verse 33. Verse 33 and how this list starts. It begins with, who through faith, right? Or by faith, that's that constant refrain, did what? Conquered kingdoms and forced justice. And the idea is that this list continues and everything in this list is by faith. And then we get to 35 and we'll notice there's no but. There's no pause. There's no like, now I'm switching gears. No, he continues the list. So what's the implication there? Suffering is by faith, just like accomplishments and victory are by faith. And in our minds, verse 35 should say, by faith women received back their dead by resurrection. And by faith some were tortured. By faith some refused to accept release. By faith God provides everything we need to endure and honor Him in the midst of horrible suffering. By faith. And the other truth is, God will always always deliver His people. It just might not come in this life. It might just be through resurrection. Look at verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Why? So that they might rise again to a better life. It could be better translated instead of life as resurrection. They might rise again to a better resurrection. God may not relieve our suffering in this life. 
We may never see these kind of victories and accomplishments in our life, but God will always and eventually deliver His people by resurrection. And that's only true because Christ is our resurrection. Because Christ is not just the example of faith, but our substitute in faith. He is the faithful man, isn't He? The one who obeyed in our place. The one who lived the life that we failed to live. Went to the cross. Paid the penalty for our sin. Rose from the dead conquering sin and death. And judgment. And He rules and reigns on high because He's defeated death forever. The ultimate picture of triumph by weakness. The ultimate picture of accomplishing by faith and suffering. Jesus did all of that for us. And if we're in Christ, then we are saved from death. What's the worst that can happen, right? That's what Jesus said. What can man do to you? Threaten you with heaven? Right? Oh, I'm going to kill you. It's not that bad. I'll depart and be with the Lord. At the end of the day, that's worst case scenario. We might suffer and die, but if we suffer and die clinging to Christ, we will rise again to eternal glory. 2 Corinthians 4 16 says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's where it's all headed. For all God's people. And so we've seen the accomplishments of faith and the suffering of faith. And let's look briefly at these last two verses and the call of faith. And there's so much in these last two verses, they deserve even a sermon on their own in some ways. So I want to draw your attention to three words, really, that will help us see the call of faith. And the words are these, us, and perfect. The first word's in verse 39. In all these, right? There's the first word, all these, referring to all these saints. All the saints in Hebrews 11. All the saints in this Old Covenant, this Old Testament. All these, though commended through their faith, Commended for their faith, as it says in the beginning of Hebrews 11. Well, who commends them? Certainly not the world, is it? The world rejected them, afflicted them. The world treated them as heretics, as a disgrace, cursed them, stoning them to death. But not God. God sees their faith. He commends their faith. He even gives them one of the most incredible commendations that we can imagine in verse 38. Did you notice that one? They were those whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy of them. The world rejected them, left them destitute, but not God. He commended them for their faith. Look at verse 39. And all these commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, the King James, New King James actually gets this right. It should say, did not receive the promise. The promise. It should be singular there. And this is actually referring to the promise, the big promise, right? They didn't get to see the finished work of Christ. The promise that Abraham longed to see. The promise that all of these saints were looking to. They didn't get to see how it would all work out. Now they saw through types and shadows. They got glimpses of it, but they didn't get to see it all come together. And so they're commended for their faith because they had great faith even though they didn't get to see that great thing. And so what about us? Those were these saints 
commended, even though they didn't get to see the promises. What about us? Verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us. There's our second word, us. Well, what's better for us? Do we have a better salvation? Do we have a better Savior? No. Do we have better faith, stronger faith than theirs? Of course not. So what's better? What's better is that we get the Gospel privilege, the blessing of of living in the age of fulfillment where they lived in the age of promise. We get to see how all the promises came true. We get a better perspective on redemptive history than they did. We get to see how the shadows gave way to substance. We get to see how the offspring would crush Satan. We get to see how the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 would come and redeem His people. We get to see the One who all the promises fulfilled. The the entire Old Testament is pointing to. I mean, have you ever stopped to consider that we live in the day where God's biggest promise is fulfilled? The greatest promise of all that they all look forward to. What an incredible privilege it is to live on this side of the cross. To see that all that Jesus did. And what are we supposed to do with that? Verse 40 says, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There's that last word, perfect. Now we think of perfect, we think, we think holiness, right? We think justification, sanctification, those are good instincts. That's all over Scripture and we receive those things in Christ. But perfect in Hebrews especially, the writer of Hebrews is trying to push that a little bit further. Nuance it a little bit. And when he talks about perfection, he's often talking about consecration. Preparing for worship and completion. This is talking about perfection. Being made fit to draw near in worship. Well, who's drawing near? Did you notice that? Verse 40. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So it's us and them. I know this verse is a little, this verse is a little bit awkward with not and apart. Those are kind of like double negative. So if we put it in a positive, it would sound like this. Together with us. Together with us, they are made perfect. They are consecrated. They are made complete. They are made fit for worship. Together we get to draw near to God with the saints in Hebrews 11. As one church, one people of God for all of eternity. Worshiping the Lord. How are we supposed to respond to that now? that's way down the road we'll keep reading we'll get more of this next week in hebrews 12 but let's read the first two verses hebrews 12 1 therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses all those witnesses all those saints that lived by faith in hebrews 11 what are we supposed to do let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus. And pay attention. The author and what? Finisher, or some translations, perfecter of our faith. It's the same root word in Greek. And see what the writer is telling us here. It's that these saints, these old covenant saints, even though they didn't have all the information, even though they didn't get to see the promise, by faith, God brought them to completion. 
How much more are we this side of the cross seeing the promises fulfilled? Will God not also bring us to completion, to consecration, into the very presence of God one day with them? If God's done all of that already, our only response is that that's where we're going to end up. Each of us will make it home safe and sound and looking just like Jesus with these saints. And so what do we do? We fix our eyes on Him. Fix our eyes on Him. In the midst of great victory and accomplishments and in the midst of great suffering and torments. We have faith in our Savior. And God will prepare us for worship. Let's pray. Father, I'm so humbled and encouraged by the work of Your Son. So thankful that Jesus did everything that I failed to, that everything that we failed to, that Jesus has done everything that the sacrificial system could never do, that every promise is yes and amen in Christ. Father, let us rejoice in our Savior. Let us look to Him by faith. Let us have hope and peace in His finished work and let us endure by that same faith, knowing that in Christ we will be perfected along with the saints to worship You for all of eternity. Father, give us faith until that, that great day comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.